Up next, Safe Space. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for the courageous telling of difficult stories. Tonight is the last of an ongoing series on living with life-threatening illness, and my guest is Ellie Mercer. Ellie is currently the chaplain at Beacon Hospice. She's worked as an, a parish minister in the past. She's an ordained UCC, that's United Church of Christ minister, and uh, she's also the mother of two grown men. Welcome to Safe Space, Ellie. Thank you, Anne. It's good to be here. So here you were, a regular parish minister, and then you decided to move into hospice ministry. Mm -hmm. Tell me um, how you decided to do that. Well, it was a long process, a long process. And I think it really started when I was a child. I think it started when I was very little, and I... I can remember one day sitting underneath a tree outside our house, and I think must have been about four years old, and I was contemplating what it was to die. I, I don't know why, I don't know how I had a sense of that, but the amusing part of it was that my father was the choir director at an Episcopal church, and I used to go there to church with him, and I loved the stained glass, and I loved the imagery, and I loved the pageantry. And I remember thinking, well, if Jesus can resurrect, I can resurrect too. (laughs) (laughs) What's good enough for him is good enough for me. me. (laughs) So I put it aside. But I was always drawn to this idea of, of, um, it it just obsessed me, this idea of living and this idea of dying and what's in between. And I grew up in an environment which was, academically competitive and athletically competitive and my friends were all PhDs and had all gone to Radcliffe and Harvard and and that's not who I was. I'm a very relational person who is interested only passionately in what it is to live authentically, what it is to live um, knowing that we're going to die, what it is to, to live knowing that we there, we come to an end and what does that all mean. So I went to seminary, and I tried that, and I didn't get the answers that I wanted in seminary, and I involved myself in parish ministry, or or I was called to different churches, which was a wonderful experience, but it still wasn't taking me where I really wanted to go. And when I retired from parish ministry, um, I had this opportunity to work for Beacon Hospice, And in fact, I really had to sort of talk my way into it because I didn't have the right credentials. But I convinced them that I should be there. And at that point, I knew that I had become myself. I knew that I was in the right place. I just, um, being with people who are very close to death or maybe even weeks or months away from death, all the masks are gone. There's no game playing where I'm, I'm with people who are just 100% authentic, um, struggling with family issues, struggling with what it means to die. And then this whole process of helping people move toward death without being afraid. 
I should back up and say that in my family also, the other thing that drew me to this was that we have not had good experiences with death. And my mother died in 1965 of undiagnosed breast cancer. She was a Christian scientist, and so it was, uh, it was not medically treated. It was not. So we went through this whole extremely difficult process, nobody talking about it. Nobody talked about the fact that she was sick. In fact, after she died, we still didn't talk about it. So it was a forbidden topic. After she died, you didn't talk about the fact that she had died we, or that she had had breast cancer? We didn't talk about any of it. It was silent. It was a silent issue. And um, in fact, for the next 15 years, I couldn't talk about that experience without... I, I could feel myself shaking. But it wasn't, and I was always thought people might see me shaking, but it was an internal shake. It was a coldness that just resonated in my body. And it wasn't until I found somebody that I could sit with who let me tell this story without judgment, without, without fear, without, that I began to come out of it. And I knew then that... Um, that I really needed to be working with people who were dying because it was the only way, really, for my own healing. And I later, uh, just about six years ago, had a sister who died the same way. And it became even more important to me to be, um, to be working with people, knowing that the process of dying can be a gentle um, I always hesitate to say there's such a thing as a good death because death is very difficult. It's separation, and that's hard. But to it, it, it the transition can be very smooth. It can be um, a very moving and profound process for everybody. So I guess I would say I know now this having this opportunity I have to work for hospice that that death can really death really is. It is a transition, and that if if um, the the other thing that I would say about it is, I think that I think death is easier when you've had a life that has been open, when you've had a life that has with um, where you've been able to become yourself. I think that's the goal for each one of us to become ourselves. And um, it's interesting <clears throat> when I used to work on the inpatient unit, I found that um, the gay men I work with that were dying of AIDS were very open. They were talking to their partners about dying. It was it was incredibly authentic and in the air. But the the folks who were dying of you know heart failure often would die without ever talking to their spouse about the fact they were dying. Mm -hmm. And I, I found myself wondering if there was something about coming out mm. that was actually enormously helpful in living an authentic mm. life. Interesting, interesting. Because it's about becoming it yourself is, it in is the face of, you know, <laughs> some certain societal odds. And it is coming out about death also. It is, it's a, it's a double coming out. It's right, maybe very, one was practice for the other. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yes, because I mean, I was struck, actually, when you were saying, you know, in my work right now, it's very authentic. Um, is it hard for you in working with people where that actually doesn't feel true? Because I'm guessing that some people go to their desks not mm. super open about it. They they die right. as they've lived. Right. They're not really talking. Right. And I, 
Right. Do you see less of that in hospice than maybe you would in a standard hospital? I think if patients come on with us early enough, we see less of it. I think the patients who come on within, you know, 48 hours or they're only on with us for a long time and the social worker and the nurse and the health aides and the chaplains don't have time to work with a family. And if there happen to be issues that would lead to a very difficult death, then I think it is harder. And that's one of the reasons that we always encourage people to come on sooner rather than later because we develop a relationship and then we can we we can move them toward and the families but yes i think the families that um uh i i also want to say i think this process of um being able i i don't i don't think that you have to for the people who have not lived an open life i think that can come within the last 24 hours it's never too late and i remember having an experience one time with somebody who um it was very, very, very early, and it was before I was actually working for hospice, um, who was very, very afraid of dying. Um, a man, and sort of a rough-and-tumble kind of guy. And, and 24 hours before his death, I went in to see him. And we talked about forgiveness. We talked about the things that he needed to get off his chest and he died a very peaceful death 24 hours later. But he really had been tortured before that. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting to see him. It's kind of like the, the movie Dead Man Walking, which I always loved, sort of at the very end. I don't think it necessarily has to be something that's happened all your life because most of us, for whatever reason, our backgrounds, our environments, don't, aren't given that chance to be truly authentic, even though that's what, as human beings, we should be encouraging one another to do. It's so hopeful, really, that there really is a chance right up to the last minute. It strikes me, given your family background coming from Christian science, that um, where, where it couldn't be talked about at all or acknowledged, you know, that to be admitted into hospice care, there has to be an acknowledgement on the part of the person and the family that I am dying. Right. So already it takes you into a whole different way. Right, right, exactly. It's it does. public, it's acknowledged. Right. Yeah. Right. It's 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 right there. It's acknowledged and and I find that I'm not sure that it's in in my experience with most patients, I think the things that they are most afraid of is pain. And of course that's what hospice is known for is comfort care. So that pain that's quite easy to um to appease people about because the pain can be managed. And the second question often is um, people who have had experiences with um, ways of thinking that make them feel there is something that they could be going to that would be destructive and hurtful. Meaning like fear of going to hell. Right, fear of going to hell or mm-hmm. fear of, right. So um, I sometimes wonder, I have patients who will say to me they're afraid of pain and then they say they're afraid of going to hell. But I have a feeling they say the first one first because it's easier. I think the real fear is what might happen afterward. How do you help people with that? Well, <clears throat> I I tell them that I, I don't... First of all, I'm quite upfront about the fact that that's not my way of thinking. I, I don't believe that there is a place, and I hope when I say that it doesn't hurt people or it doesn't... But it's not it's not what I believe. And then I usually go on to tell them what I believe. And in my experience of working 
with people who are dying, I have really come to believe that there is a transition. I don't know what it is. I think there's a... Um, it, it's hard for me to believe that that there is not something... And, and I can't define it. It's it's indefinable. But that there is that, that what is our flesh and what makes us up is, you know, it's that's going to go. But there's something else that just lives beyond um, that... Um, does that help with their fear, though, that if they've done things that they really regret, that it won't be bad for them? I don't know. Usually by the time they ask me that, they're really, they're really at the end. And if, well, I say at the end, of course, if they're really at the end, they're not able to, to communicate about that. But um, it... Um, you know, I, I don't know. They say it does. I, most patients will tell me that it does. And I think it's not even what we say. I think it's our presence. Yes. I really believe that it, it is, it's our presence. It's something intangible that I happens. can imagine just listening to you that feeling the safety to articulate that fear mm. begins to lift right. it. Right, right. Feeling that you can receive it. Exactly. And be with them. Exactly. In that fear. Right. It already robs it of some of its right, power. Right, it does. It absolutely does. Is your role in some ways as the hospice chaplain, is it to facilitate apologies or forgivenesses among family members? Well, we have social workers, and that's more the social workers. I, well, in terms, of apology, <laughs> in, in terms of apology, that probably is much more my role. But we have social workers who work very effectively with families if there are issues um, among family members that need to be dealt with. My role would be, yeah, lots of times um, there is, um, I, I, lots of times I do prayers of reconciliation with patients and with families. And it's amazing to me what, what of course, what I call prayer isn't what necessarily everyone else would call prayer. What, I, is, what is what you well, call prayer? Well, I think prayer? I, I love that Mary Oliver poem, I don't know what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. And for me, that's what it's all about, is going in and just paying attention and offering whatever needs to be offered in order to help with some kind of reconciliation process. And paying attention is sometimes just going in and not saying much for a while, but just sort of trying to pick up the energy and assess the energy in a room and see what's, you know, watch the people around and see what's happening. And once you pick up on that and you can draw it into a, some sort of, I, I see prayer as language which just has a different syntax. It just doesn't have, it, there's not a necessarily a period in a, in a, it's more like a poem. <laughs> doesn't necessarily so have a subject and a verb. <laughs> this is Dr. Ann at Safe Space. It's WMPG. And I'm talking to Ellie Mercer about hospice and in particular about being a hospice chaplain. I want to shift gears now, Ellie, mm -hmm. and ask you a little bit about your own experience in your family with illness. I know that um, over the past few years, you've had some very serious um, health concerns personally. And I'd love to hear, tell me a little bit about what what that story is and then I'll ask you more about it after that. Okay. Well, after my husband and I retired from a um, from First Parish Church in Saco, 
he his what had been clearly developing health issues just materialized and he um had a couple of he had a very serious heart attack and he had um but the bottom line was that it, his kidneys were going so he after after the major heart attack where he was in the trauma room and we really were not i i wasn't sure he was going to pull through um he he did pull through obviously and was in cardiac intensive care for about uh a week in a coma and um then was put on dialysis because his kidneys failed they had to do a procedure and his kidneys failed and he was on dialysis for about a year and a half and the, our his doctor his nephrologist when talked he spoke about treatment said that the best treatment of course would be if he could a transplant and so it turned out that, that our older son eric was a perfect match for him so in in 2008 august 2008 um that was probably one of the most traumatic i i would say the most traumatic day of my life when because i had been treating this like kind of a tonsillectomy and i think it was my defense it was my way of getting through knowing that both my son and my husband were going to be um in a very compromising place so the day of the morning of the surgery um we left the house at five o'clock and they were due at five thirty for prepping and we went into the um prepping place and I, what i hadn't expected was that there there were just a number of people there were a lot of scrub nurses and there were or there were nurses in scrubs i mean not scrub nurses but nurses in scrubs and the anesthesiologist and the attention kept kept getting more and more intense and because both my kids have incredible senses of humor they were just they were just making a big joke of it well the joke ended for me when they began to eric was to go in first to have his kidney removed and when they finally had when he they had given him an iv um relaxant whatever that was they took they there were about seemed to me like five or six people around his gurney and they took his gurney and they just moved it over to peter's gurney and they said to him now say goodbye and for me it was a crescendo of emotion it was a ritual and i didn't expect that i did not expect that it was so intense and i watched him disappear and go into the or and i became terrified i was terrified did that word goodbye make you feel like oh my god he might die say that i didn't did that them saying say goodbye did that make you feel like he might die um i don't even think i got that far with it i think i yeah i i think what happened was i thought he's giving something up that cannot be there there's no turning back there is no turning back here this is done and and it took me it took me a week and some antidepressants <laughs> to come down from that because it was um uh, my husband was just f- fine because he had all these wonderful drugs <laughs> and um he was doing really well it was for the donor it's just harder and it was it was intense and it was it was um was very very hard so there you were 
not with one, but with two people that you love most in the universe, both so vulnerable. Right, right. And um, did it, at that time, were you already a hospice chaplain? I was. And so how, you know, so here you are, you're used to working with Mm -hmm. people in extremely Mm -hmm. vulnerable positions. Did that help you at all, personally, or did it go out the window? (laughs) I think that, I was thinking about that on the way over here, actually. I think what happens, and I maybe this happens to most people with a serious illness, I don't know, but um, I think somehow something gets you, w- when, when you're on the inside moving through it, there's something that happens that gets you through it. When you're on the outside looking in, you think, how do they do that? How does anybody do that? Um, so I, I don't... Um, I don't know how my hospice experience helps me in my own personal dealing with family. I I don't know that. My sister, about three weeks, well, about four weeks after, no, four months after I had just started with hospice, my older sister um, died again of untreated colon cancer. And such a treatable cancer, such a and it was a terrible, terrible experience. That time, I completely fell apart. I fell apart both times. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't, um, I, I was not functioning very well both times. Um, but maybe, you know, my question is perhaps unfortunate because it's maybe implying that your hospice training or experience should have helped you not fall apart. Maybe falling apart was the absolutely right Response. Well, I, I think it was, and I, I, I lo- one of my favorite poems is that poem of David White's. I'm sure you know it, because I, I think I read it, and I read it m- at memorial services, but when he says, those who will not slip beneath the surface on the well of grief, moving downward through the black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never find in the darkness glimmering those small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. I think when we, if we allow ourselves to go beneath the surface into that place we can't breathe, because we all know where that is, we all know that place when you think you're just not going, there's no way you can get through this. It is in that place that we do find the small round coins. And once it breaks open, it's when it becomes. It's when it's a secret. It's when it's hidden that it, it's it's we can't breathe. But when it's open and we move beyond that, and it's not any longer um, a secret that death isn't a secret, that illness isn't a secret, then I think we find in that those small round coins. And are those small round coins? Is that is that hope? Is that the possibility of newness? What what are? I what think are those it's. Coins? I think it's the hope of transformation of something new. And since we're in the Easter season, it's really a form of resurrection. It's a, it's something. It it's new possibility. It's something that we had not ever thought of before. We hadn't. Um, mm. It it's it's just some piece we hadn't thought of. So maybe maybe you know I'm just listening to you and I'm thinking, maybe your deep trust of that is what allowed you to fall apart, which was exactly what needed to happen, and similarly allows you to accompany others. It, it may be. I hadn't, I hadn't thought water. of it that way. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it may be exactly what it is. 
the one other thing I would say about that is that our good friend Michael Dwinell, who um, passed away about a year ago, always used to say, um, every moment is pregnant with the possibility of God. And that's what those, I think that's what those deep down dark places feel like. In those moments, in those moments, perhaps more than when we're in the light, the, the possibility of God is, there are possibilities that we don't know until we go to those places. And they're very real, they're rich, they're authentic, they're, they're, that's what I, that's what I love about it. It's just authenticity. It's real. Do you, do you tell your patients about that as a way? I mean, when I hear you, it feels so hopeful to know that I could go to that dark, mm-hmm. terrifying, mm-hmm. grief-stricken place where I can't breathe, mm-hmm. and that there would be something so hopeful mm-hmm. and life-giving there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do share that with them. Yeah, I do. Like a tremendous gift. Because I, I, I do that a lot, actually, because I think that's where... There's no question in, I mean, if we were to pursue that topic and we looked at those places where we are um, most vulnerable, that's where we, those are our richest moments. That's how we connect in our vulnerability. That is really where I connect with you and you connect with me. We don't connect over our um, positions and our salaries and our houses and our uh, boats. We connect over our vulnerability. We connect when we really are open. Seems to me that part of what you give your patients then is really that invitation. That know you know that you're comfortable with it, and you invite them into it with you. Right, right. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. I hope that's what I hope that's what I can bring. Um, <laughs> I think you do. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I wish you could be my chaplain when it comes my time. <laughs> I imagine people listening are feeling the same way, Ellie. Thanks, Anne. It's really such a pleasure to have you as my guest on Thank Safe you. Space. If someone wants to find out more about hospice, I know there are several hospices mm-hmm. in the area. What's a, a phone number that they could reach out to Beacon Hospice and learn more? They could call the Portland office. The number is 772 772- 0929. That's the Beacon Hospice number. There. And if a house, it's a six month period, right? That mm-hmm. you need to, you need to mm-hmm. have sort of a six months prognosis to be able right. to be admitted. Right. But we do have patients who are on for much longer than that. Oh, you do? Yeah. Right, because we're, of course, so imprecise about predicting. Right. And do you have to have insurance to get on hospice? It's all covered by Medicare. There's no additional expense. It's all Medicare. Regardless, Regardless. even if you don't have Medicare. Uh, if you have to have Medicare, and I'm not sure what the answer is for people who don't. I can't answer that. Okay. They can answer that at Beacon. Call, call Beacon Hospice and find out if this applies to you. So this is Dr. Ann thanking you, Ellie Mercer, chaplain at Beacon Hospice, for being thank, my guest. Thank you, Ann. Uh, my thanks also to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. Uh, if you have a request or a suggestion for a future topic, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next week, I'll be starting a new month-long series on the topic of suicide, and my guest will be Dr. Nancy Rappaport. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.